українське незалежне радіо. Joining me today on Ukraine Watch from the Black Sea port city of Odessa is Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the faculty of the Department of International Relations at Mechnikov National University and the director of its Center for International Studies. Thank you very much for being here, Volodymyr. Hello, Dan. Thanks for having me. Last Friday, speaking at the White House, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor for the Biden administration, said Russia could potentially launch an invasion of Ukraine any day now, and he urged any Americans still in the country to leave immediately. Uh, the following day, during a visit to Ukrainian army outposts in Kherson, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, according to the president's official website, said, quote, we are not afraid of anyone. Do not panic. Everything is under control. However, the Ukrainian foreign ministry has issued a formal protest over Russian plans to partially block the Black Sea under the guise of naval military exercises. Uh, this move by Russia could have devastating effects on Ukraine's economy by shutting down vital parts, uh, excuse me, vital ports in Kherson and Odessa. Additionally, Western allies are canceling flights to and from Ukraine and Western businesses are removing personnel. I want to start Volodymyr by asking you what the mood is like in Odessa and does it feel like the West is isolating Ukraine? Well, the times are testing, that's for sure. And the situation is tense. Uh, some people feel it more than others. It really depends on who you talk to. Uh, some people just uh, outright dismiss uh, the cautions and uh, the forecast for the war. They don't think it's possible. Others are more uh, paying attention, uh, some in an alarmist mode. So you're, it's really up to who you talk to. Uh, a lot of people have lived with uh, Russian aggression for too long, for almost eight years now. And uh, that's why a lot of people just uh, often uh, say like, well, what, what's new? I mean, we had Russian troops on that side of the border all the time. So what was the element of novelty here? And that's what uh, Zelensky is saying as well. And uh, I think uh, Zelensky is sending the right message uh, to a large extent uh, not to panic, uh, focus on defense, uh, leave your lives, but uh, be aware of the Russian threat. But I also think that uh, Jake Sullivan is sending right uh, messages as well uh, to Ukraine and just be aware. Russia may be just, uh, may be just a few days away from what they want to do, or depending on what they want to do, because we still don't know. And uh, sending signal to Americans in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, if you care uh, about the threat, uh, you can uh, leave. Or if you don't, I mean, you can stay. And there are many Americans who are staying. Um, but then, uh, of course, it's a message like uh, you should leave uh, or do not expect American government to come and rescue you in the middle of the war. Of the war. So that's, that's uh, kind of a responsible position, I think. And uh, to Moscow as well, we know your plans. I mean, there are some plans that are leaking uh, or leaked to us. We uh, intercepted some plans or something. So I think it's an interesting uh, game by Washington. Uh, it's been unique uh, several weeks or months when Washington would immediately go to public, go to press with whatever they intercepted uh, of Russian plans. Uh, you know, undermining those plans, uh, making and forcing Moscow to redo them, you know, and come up, come up with some different plans, and maybe undermining their plans, you know, maybe uh, pushing them uh, kind of a down uh, towards the closing of the window uh, for the potential 
uh, escalation or assault at Ukraine. Some people are saying there's a certain window that Russia would like to uh, use if they are actually planning to assault Ukraine uh, in a bigger, large, on a larger state, a scale. Uh, and uh, by saying, okay, they're going to attack on Wednesday, and the Russians say, oh, damn, we couldn't do it on Wednesday now because Americans said we're going to attack Wednesday or maybe next week. Okay, so we should probably do it like in 10 days from now or something. So there's a certain logic here as well. And I think there's a lot of messages that make sense, but uh, at the same time, uh, we are still in the status quo of the last several months with all these huge uh, armies of Russia next to our borders, uh, heavily equipped, uh, several potential front lines. Of course, the emergence of the Belarus front line was an ominous addition uh, because we didn't uh, initially uh, plan to protect uh, from attack from the north, but now the attack from the north could be uh, one of the most uh, uh, real uh, and feasible scenarios, unfortunately, because of the proximity to Kiev. So we need to reinforce that uh, uh, part of the front potential front line as well. So the situation stands, uh, people are aware of the threats, um, but uh, uh, life indeed uh, does go on and uh, there's no panic, there's no hysteria, there's no empty shelves in the supermarkets, nothing of that sort. Okay, well, that's good to hear. So you think perhaps the signaling from the Biden administration, I mean, we can't get into the mind of Vladimir Putin, but perhaps it's, it's working sort of as a, a psychological deterrent? I think it does. I think it does because Biden decided that, well, first of all, of course, there will be no boots on the ground. And we understand that in Ukraine. I mean, some people maybe don't. Some people would probably like to have American soldiers on our side against the Russian soldiers. That'd be great. But uh, anyone who, like myself, who's been doing analysis of uh, all sort of this kind of sorts of things for years, we realize that's not going to be possible. It's not going to be possible. And um, none of the armies uh, from any other countries would join Ukrainians fighting Russians. Uh, the recent uh, sociological poll actually done across the borders of various countries have shown that there's one country, uh, probably unsurprisingly, where you even have a, a slight majority population uh, uh, liking the idea of maybe their own soldiers to be fighting with Ukrainians, uh, uh, together with Ukrainians against the Russians as Poland. Uh, you know, and uh, but that's it. Uh, in, even there, uh, you know, of course, the government is not going to send Polish troops or something uh, into Ukraine. Uh, but any other type of support, we appreciate it, be it the arms or weapons, little weapons, non-little weapons, uh, be it financial assistance, be it diplomatic assistance, all of that. Uh, Ukraine is trying, you know, to grasp at all the straws and they're trying to play by the rules. Uh, you know, we replied, for instance, the other day, we replied for a so-called uh, Vienna Agreement uh, Protocol uh, with the Organization of Security Cooperation in Europe, OCE, uh, where Kiev uh, asked uh, Moscow to explain what's going on around our borders. Uh, and uh, the window to do that is 48 hours. They passed. Moscow didn't provide any, any explanations. And therefore now Poland, actually, which is, uh, um, you know, which is now uh, heading the OEC, uh, can uh, convene a session uh, and Russian delegation might come and try to explain what's going on and be embarrassed or miss this meeting, which is, which is going to be still also embarrassing for the Moscow. So I think it's, uh, it's, it does say a lot that uh, these days Russia is often isolated. They uh, do have some support from here and there. The major development here, of course, of the last few weeks is that uh, China 
uh, has stepped up uh, rhetorically at least in support of of russian uh, so but we're not we're not talking about uh, we're not really talking about the some kind of established uh, fully established strategic uh, chinese russian alliance here but uh, with regards to sending uh, a big, uh, you know, middle finger to U.S. Of course, they would be working together, and of course, they've made up with this huge Beijing resolution, or what's official name of it is, uh, where they call for the multipolar world, where not only the West can actually dictate what's going to be happening, because here in Moscow and, and, and Beijing, we also have our say, and we have something to back it up with: economic might, uh, military forces, and so on. So the Chinese, uh, uh, at the same time, some people are saying uh, are not uh, enthusiastic about any plans of Moscow to attack Ukraine uh, because it will be destabilizing. And I'm not in, in, only talking or even talking about uh, Russia attacking while the Olympics are still on. Uh, even if they do it after, uh, if they do it, uh, I mean, uh, China might still be probably in uneasy situation here, uh, you know, looking at their new uh, major partner, escalating the fight, even though, of course, uh, Chinese uh, propaganda will be uh, blaming the West, the US and NATO and so on. But also China had uh, big ideas about Ukraine, uh, you know, and uh, penetrating there and actually uh, making Ukraine potentially part of their uh, uh, belt uh, 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 and road. And I mean, the whole, the whole idea of uh, expanding Chinese uh, uh, influence, uh, including the financial investment and so on, so they would like to have a, a devastating war between Ukraine and Russia. And I wonder if this is a factor. On one hand, of course, they are rhetorically with Moscow, but on other, if this factor is moderating somehow what Moscow might do, because uh, the recent visit of Putin to, to uh, uh, Chinese leader was unique, because Putin wasn't meeting anyone for a long time. And uh, Mr. Xi, you know, the Chinese leader, hasn't met any foreign leaders for two years, I think. And then they meet. So it's a big deal. But at the same time, it could be that uh, uh, Beijing also said to Moscow, you know what, uh, we are with you, but to some extent there are some red lines. Please don't cross those, those red lines. It's hard to say. It's all speculation, of course, because we don't know. But uh, there are so many factors here in, in, in the play. And uh, I think uh, Ukraine is trying to make uh, the best out of it. We don't have a strong hand, but we do have certain, uh, certain uh, strong points, uh, you know, including our army which is much stronger, better equipped, better, more experienced than we used to have a few years ago. And uh, right now it's definitely one of the better, better armies in the world. You know, of course, Russia still has upper hand. It's asymmetric conflict. It's Russia. You know, they invest tons of money into it. They have resources. They have nukes if, if they want to use them. Hopefully not. But uh, uh, our army is still strong and they can uh, deliver devastating uh, defensive counter strikes against Russians if they decide to, to do this crazy thing and attack Ukraine on a larger scale. Well, I actually want to ask you to speculate a little bit more because um, supposing there was some kind of worst case scenario where Russia did indeed launch an all out uh, escalation of invasion on the territory of Ukraine, uh, there would likely be some harsh sanctions or at least the West has signaled that and perhaps Moscow wouldn't be able to sell gas to the Western uh, countries anymore. Do you think that would jeopardize also based on what you're saying about China, their deal or Putin's new deal to sell gas to China? I don't think so. I think it's actually Putin's backdoor solution. If they have somehow lose the European market, then there's a Chinese market. But experts say, uh, they tell us that uh, it's not going to be a substitute. Uh, the Chinese market is big. 
uh, but it's going to take time to develop it. Uh, uh, and uh, if uh, Russia somehow loses the uh, European market now, that's going to be a difficult uh, moment economically for Russia. And uh, Europe is already learning in the recent few months the things that they should learn years before, that they shouldn't be depending on Russia exclusively. They should diversify the sources. They've been talking about this for years and years. And all of a sudden, it's only in the recent months that people in Berlin and Paris and elsewhere are suddenly realizing, oh my God, how did, we, how did, how did it come to us depending so much on the Russian supply of natural gas? So yeah, so then Qatar is coming in and Norway is uh, you know, pushing the, 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 the outputs uh, to the maximum what they can provide. And then, of course, uh, American LNG liquefied natural gas is coming in, 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 in record numbers. So it's going to be maybe uh, some sort of a reorientation of European market in the coming years. And then people are already saying that could be backfiring on what Russia is doing right now, because people after all might say, you know what, we probably don't need uh, to have, uh, uh, you know, a partner providing us with gas, which is Russia, because Russia is so unpredictable with what they do in, in Europe, in, in their region and so on. So that is interesting. I think uh, that... Uh, uh, we're going to see some unexpected results uh, and already Putin got some negative outcomes of this escalation. For instance, people in Finland and Sweden are thinking out loud about maybe joining NATO, something which wasn't talked about so intensively in previous years. Right. Others are alarmed as well. Uh, for instance, uh, Bulgaria, where you have a strong uh, current of pro-Russian sentiment, uh, but when it was mentioned by Moscow pro diplomacy you know, quite recently, uh, the Bulgarian prime minister had to come out and say, look, it's not from Moscow to tell us what to do. If we want to be part of the UN NATO, that's our decision. So, so there is a backlash against, uh, you know, against uh, Moscow, even in Bulgaria. So there are many things uh, where they're kind of losing already, not to mention that there's been a lot of panic here, panic there in the fund markets, uh, stock markets and so on. And some Russian corporations and some banks already lost uh, some of their money. Uh, so the sanctions might be uh, a, a, a way forward, and unfortunately, that's the only way forward for the West because the the, the instrumentarium, as they say, uh, the toolbox for the West is not huge. I mean, what can you do if you're not sending troops? You know, you've tried diplomacy. What else? It's sanctions. So it's just a measure, just a matter of how much of sanctions, what, which level, who do you sanction? Uh, is it sectoral? Is it individuals? Is it both? So Russians are now saying, you know, they're putting this uh, brave uh, expression on their faces like, oh, we don't care. Uh, I think today or yesterday, the Russian ambassador to Sweden uh, said something like, we don't give a damn about your sanctions, except that he didn't say damn, he said worse. But uh, they do, you know, by saying this, they actually not necessarily, they, they're showing bravado, but at the same time, they might be actually uh, masking uh, their uneasiness about what those sanctions might do. And I hope there will be some, if they attack Ukraine on a larger scale, there will be some, as they say, nuclear sanctions. And I hope that Russia is going to suffer through that because, uh, you know, there's no other way. Uh, but uh, it's true. They've accumulated some money, like the reserve fund, the civilization fund is huge. I think it's something like $650 billion. But uh, if the sanctions are systemic enough, and the Russians can eat through that fund quickly, actually. And if they lose some of the markets, that's also a big loss for them. So, you know, I think they're really weighing hard now what they're going to win, the cost and benefits. But at the same time, as there is a stretch, I'm afraid that Putin is a bit unhinged now, that he is not a rational player as we used to know him, that he can do irrational things, crazy things, that he's too emotional, you know, too passionate. 
to an illogical about about Ukraine specifically because of his recent speeches and articles and everything about Ukraine as artificial state and uh, Ukraine and Russian being one people and uh, that whole thing should be corrected and the whole dissolution of Soviet Union was a tragedy, biggest tragedy of his life. And at least there should be Eastern Slavs all together, one kind of union, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. So those crazy things that he's saying or writing publicly, I mean, they, I think that he's speaking his mind, and that's making him kind of dangerous. Hey, you mentioned that article that he wrote uh, about the sort of the unity of Ukrainian and Russian people. I was surprised to see the Ukrainian language on the Kremlin website because he published it in Ukrainian and English. Um, it, it's sort of... I don't know what to make of it, because if, if the world were to be thrown into chaos because, uh, I guess, one man or one circle were to decide to start a larger war, how long could they possibly last with uh, the only lifeline being selling gas to China? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, it's most of the time it's one person, actually. If you, you look at the history, you know, uh, the First World War was actually a bunch of uh, people who were doing responsible things, and that uh, ended uh, badly. Uh, Second World War is basically Hitler, one person, one person, but then Stalin actually doing similar things. Uh, look at Ma- what Mao did at one point of time. So, and uh, most of the time, just one person who doesn't have any uh, checks and balances, doesn't have any uh, limits of his or her power, and they, you know, therefore push the world towards a disaster. So Putin is one of those men, and I'm afraid he's living in this bubble, uh, which is even smaller these days. Uh, you know, we don't know much about what's going on in the Kremlin, uh, just because it's very murky, it's very non-transparent, always been. But right now, uh, what, what we're hearing is that he's hardly socializing with anyone, uh, that people are coming to him and putting some information in his table, and he would look at it, and he would even even say a word back to them and the people would leave the office not knowing what, what he's thinking, what he's uh, planning, where he's leaning to. You know, look at all of this Lavrov, the foreign minister and others, uh, you know, speaking publicly in the recent weeks and months, and it's obvious they have no idea what Putin is planning to do. You know, even some people he's in the circle, they say, we don't know, we don't know. So it's so non-transparent. And, uh, you know, like, like I said, we, we can only hope that there is some rationality left there, that, uh, you know, pushing towards the brink, towards the disaster, uh, he, wouldn't be, he wouldn't be bringing uh, Ukraine and other countries in the region with it, because it's not going to be just Ukraine, obviously. This whole crisis is not just about Ukraine, and that's why uh, it's not right even to call the Ukraine crisis. I mean, it's Russia crisis. It's Ukraine-Russia-Belarus crisis. It's, it's Ukraine-Russia Central Europe, Europe crisis. So is Ukraine, Russia, US crisis. I mean, it's a huge crisis where you have all these elements. If you look at the Russian so-called security proposals from December 17th, they're talking about half of NATO. You know, they think that everything should be undone, what was done with NATO, so enlargement uh, since 1997. So, and that's 14 countries out of 30, so it's almost half of NATO. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a huge crisis. We still don't know what to make of those security proposals. Why Moscow put all of these unrealistic, uh, you know, demands in there? Uh, did they want actually them to be dismissed, to use it as, to say, well, we haven't, we haven't been heard, we've been ignored. That's why we have to, to use military tools. Or did they, after all, uh, want it to, uh, for the West to come up with some alternative ideas and suggestions that might be interested to Moscow? That is still possible. That is still possible because even formally in Moscow, they say 
Well, our major concerns are not being addressed, but there are some things that we can work uh, with the West uh, diplomatically. Uh, you know, second-rate matters, they call them, but who knows? Uh, some people are saying that uh, U.S. have put forward some suggestions that uh, if uh, being put forward, say, half a year ago, a year ago, that would be enthusiastically accepted in Moscow these days about the nuclear missiles placing, about transparency, non-transparency of exercises, and so on and so on. So, so we'll see. I mean, surprisingly, even now, you know, when we talk about this after months, months of escalation, we still couldn't just quite uh, decipher and figure what is going on. Is it a real preparation for invasion? Or is it some kind of amazing, very expensive, huge systemic intimidation game, a big, big bluff, maybe biggest in the world's history? Well, I want to circle back to talking about the administration's actions this week. Um, in a piece for Yevropeiska uh, Pravda published back in January 20th, uh, you wrote that the greatest challenge for the Biden administration thus far has been the escalation of Russian military presence on Ukraine's border. Do you think, do you think the administration's urgent call for Americans to leave Ukraine has something to do with the desire to avoid a repeat of the horrifying scenes we saw from the U.S. Uh, exit from Afghanistan? Absolutely, absolutely. This is definitely uh, an echo of what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, this administration came to power trying to project uh, confidence and, uh, you know, we, they said we're very experienced, we plan for everything, uh, you know, we have some capable people responsible for that, that direction and all of a sudden there was this chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Others are actually saying that probably it was inevitable once uh, Americans uh, announced they're going to leave Afghanistan, there would be some chaos on the ground, but maybe too much of it we saw in August last year. So yes, uh, first of all, it's an attempt to, you know, try not to repeat that. And second of all, uh, second of all, it's also a, uh, an attempt not to get a major foreign policy embarrassment. And uh, I, I know, I mean, I think it's going to be, if, if, if Ukraine is attacked and U.S. is not playing decisive role in helping Ukraine, I think it's going to be a much larger embarrassing and a loss and a tragedy for American foreign policy than, than, uh, than Afghanistan, uh, frankly. Uh, because so. well, Afghanistan has a special role in American for history and foreign policy because that's where the people who did 9-11 came from, obviously, so that's why. But at the same time, Afghanistan, not necessarily in the part of the war, which is, was uh, extremely critically important for U.S., but Ukraine is, because for the, during the Cold War, which is almost all second half of the 20th century, Ukraine was part of that uh, area, which is now post-Soviet space. And if they lose here, then definitely there'll be a lot of voices on all corners uh, in U.S. asking, like, who lost Ukraine or how that even was uh, possible. And I'm not only even talking about usual politicization, you know, between the parties. I'm not only talking about Republicans asking. I'm sure there'll be other voices asking, uh, uh, you know, about this. And by the way, I, I, I should say that I'm really disappointed about the position uh, that, the, that the left wing of Democratic Party is uh, coming up with on all this. All of a sudden, it's still, you know, bad wolf US, bad wolf American imperialism. And somehow Russia is in a, is in position of a righteous uh, uh, warrior or fighter for their rights. I don't know what's going on. 
with the West. Uh, there is a Stop the War Coalition. There is a former leader of Labour Party, Corbyn, speaking at meetings and, and manifestations and demonstrations in, in, in London, uh, but also Progressive Caucus in the US. Uh, you know, and I should tell you, I'm kind of a liberal person, uh, you know, ideologically, I often uh, agree with what they're saying, but this time around, it's not Biden who is escalating. You know, it's not Biden who is escalating by sending this, what, two, three, maybe 4,000 people, and not to Ukraine, you know, but to Poland and Romania. Uh, but uh, it is uh, Putin who is escalating by sending 150,000 people with no reason whatsoever, you know, and how can you... You know, they say that Biden should be engaged in diplomacy. That's exactly what he was doing. <laughs> but in the, in, the, in the face of what Putin is doing and not listening to the words uh, of reason, you know, uh, you have to you have to send certain uh, deterring kind of signals, uh, specifically to calm down the people who are really worried right now. Romanians are worried with this uh, ongoing uh, Navy exercises in the Black Sea. They are. Uh, you know, Baltics worried, Poles really worried, specifically with Belarus, which is basically not a state anymore, but somehow occupied by Russia. All of a sudden, they have Russian troops on the border. I mean, the Poles were always been uh, you know, thinking that, uh, thanks God, <laughs> we have Ukraine and Belarus between us and Russia. And now there's no Belarus, basically, uh, and, and what happens to Ukraine matters enormously to Poland. So everyone is really alarmed in the region, and uh, it's not Washington which led to this. You know, if anything, we've seen in the last uh, several months the logic and, and rationale for why all these countries in Central Eastern Europe were rushing to NATO uh, on the moment they got this opportunity in the 1990s. That's why, because now there is a collective security and collective defense working for them. Otherwise, can you imagine any of those smaller countries uh, being vis-a-vis -vis Russia without any support from a major alliance? They'll be pretty much doomed. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, there's already been an issue at the border between Poland and Belarus prior to this with uh, right. the migrant crisis. You know, I, I'm... You bring up uh, some interesting points about what's going on in sort of Western politics. I was going to ask you about this a little bit later in our conversation, but I think it's a good point to bring it up now. Um, so the, uh, if the current tensions with Moscow don't diminish anytime soon, and, and they may not, uh, are you concerned that a change in who controls Congress uh, after the U.S. midterm elections this November could impact the level of support and attention Ukraine is getting from the Biden administration right now? No, I don't, actually, because I see a lot of um, consensus here. Uh, yes, uh, there have been some frictions here and there, like, for instance, there have been different uh, uh, bills suggested of what to do about uh, the Russian escalation. I mean, uh, what you do with the Nord Stream 2, uh, but also what you do with sanctions, do you do them right now because Russians are escalating already or you wait actually till they actually invade Ukraine further. So there are many, you know, little tactical details uh, which are important, but uh, on the strategic level, there is absolute agreement between two major parties that Russia is a threat and Ukraine is a friend and Ukraine needs to be supported. Of course, there are some fringes, as I've said, and not only on left, extreme left in the Democratic Party, but also, of course, on the kind of a radical right, uh, I'm sure that listeners of your program uh, would have different, uh, uh, you know, ideological inclinations, so they are free to decide for themselves. But also when we hear people on, on, on the right, uh, for instance, Senator Hawley or Senator uh, Rand Paul or some others in the House as well, including some newer members in the House who say, 
uh, you know, Russia is actually a good uh, guy here and Ukraine is not, and why we, why are even involved? I understand there is a certain libertarian, uh, isolationist wave in in US as well, especially after many, many years of being involved in uh, endless wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq, specifically in Afghanistan. I understand the logic of that because I study US, that's my field. I study US domestically and foreign policy, US-Ukraine relations. Uh, but uh, having said that, in terms of a future of support for Ukraine and the Congress on the Hill, uh, I see those fringes, but they're not, they're not dictating the rules of the game. There is a still uh, strong uh, consensus, uh, moderate center on both sides, two parties working together. And that's how it used to be. And that's why I'm uh, reasonably optimistic in terms of uh, uh, Ukraine continuing to enjoy uh, support of uh, American uh, Congress. Well, and yet, I, that's a, you know, I appreciate that point. And yet you see uh, former Democratic candidate for president showing up on a very popular talk show on Fox News, saying things like, Ukraine is not a democracy, uh, opposition oh, television okay. channels Tulsi, are being yeah, shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tulsi Gabbard. Mm -hmm. Opposition television uh, stations are being shut down and uh, opposition political leaders are being rounded up and arrested. Uh, I mean, I, I hope that the, this is falling on deaf ears, but I, I wonder if that's influencing anybody of consequence, or do you think it's just silly? Uh, it's mostly silly. I don't know what's her game. Uh, you know, she started saying this kind of things uh, early on when she, it was obvious that she's not uh, moving anywhere with her campaign uh, for the nomination for the presidency. And uh, quickly she became a darling of, of Tucker Carlson show and uh, she is often there. And that's, in, that's interesting because you have what, uh, if you think about it, I've talked about radical left and some alt-right. And they're meeting together somehow this circle is connecting and that's yeah. interesting some people actually call it the red brown coalition coalition meaning reds you know you know commies yeah. extreme left brown yeah. being you know yeah yeah and so on and uh I don't, I don't know what's going on obviously she's not influential but uh for some people you know the other day i think edward snowden spoke up and he he said it's it's west which is warmongering this western media which is doing this and people are saying, really, we're just covering what's going on. You know, we're just looking at these armies and all of these missiles coming in and Rus Russian National Guard coming in and the tanks and everything and now ships and also uh, the, the, the Air Force being prepared and paratroopers. We're looking at that. So should we ignore that? Why would, why would any reasonable media person ignore such developments? Of course, they're reporting on this. But they are not beating the drums of war. Putin does. So trying to shift the blame on, on Washington, how it reacts actually in a very modest uh, kind of a cautious way, uh, not to mention media, which is reporting on it. It's a really strange game. So can you imagine that media would be actually ignoring this story? It's a big story. Of course, they should report on it. When you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Ukraine is an ally of the United States, uh, you know, Ukraine is a democracy. There's sort of a, a values-driven argument for why the West should care about Ukraine. Right. Is there, is there in your mind a, a more pragmatic argument, meaning to say, you know, if you were talking to say a, a, an American citizen or somebody in the West who's a little bit skeptical about whether or not this it's in the United States' interests to support Ukraine, or should they just it's an, stay out of it, it's not their fight. What would you say right. to someone like that? 
Yeah, well, first of all, values thing is a big thing. You know, I mean, uh, I can remember the, the 1990s and there was this concept of uh, enlargement of a community of countries that are based on democratic values and the market economy under Clinton administration and uh, Ukraine was a, was a major part of it. And then there was a democracy promotion, uh, which is often discredited, but I think it was a good thing. I mean, America believing in democracy, believing in those values, believing in its own model, and trying to share it with the rest of the world, not necessarily impose it, enforce it on someone, but if you like this idea, we can help you uh, to build uh, this model within your own country, why not? And actually, I was disappointed that with a few recent administrations, they stopped doing that as enthusiastically various reasons uh, and, uh, and that's uh, that's why i think uh, value thing is is important ukraine is democracy maybe imperfect maybe sometimes messy maybe sometimes you know uh, hesitant like doing one right thing and then another one which is not right move in the wrong direction it happens still immature uh, still you have sometimes you know this opportunistic flip-flopping politicians Some, uh, you still have quite a lot of corruption around you know that influences what's going on in Ukraine, but 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 in a general way, it's a major major difference between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, in Ukraine, you have pluralism opinions, you have different political parties, you have free polit uh, elections. Uh, if the guy loses, he loses. You know, Poroshenko, whatever. You know, he lost in a landslide. You know, but of course he had this resources, administrative resources, and army, security, service, and police, and everything. If he would want it, he would stay, <laughs> like Lukashenko did, or Putin is staying. But no, of course he lost. Okay, I'm going. So here comes a new guy, Zelensky. And uh, that's a major difference. You know, the people can speak their minds freely. I'm a university professor in Ukraine. If I'm critical of what the government is doing, I'm saying it openly. If I'm a critical, you know, if I think they deserve criticism and I talk to my students during the lectures, I'm critical of my government. No one is coming to tell me what to do, what to say. No one is taking me away because of that. In Russia, it's quite different. You know, the people who are talking to the students, my colleagues there, they have to watch, you know, closely what they're doing. So on the values thing, it's a big, big thing that Ukraine is actually is an is a ally, natural ally for U.S. On other things, uh, the, 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 the international order uh, is something that Americans invested enormously over decades and decades. And that's why uh, when it's violated uh, since 2014, starting from Crimea and uh, all the way to up to now, not to mention potential escalation and new invasion, of course, Americans should stood up with it. You know, Americans uh, wanted this order to be put in a certain way and uh, they've uh, invested all this energy and money and resources and they should keep it. Uh, defending it, uh, the, 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 the energy pipelines, you know, the energy flow uh, between uh, certain countries uh, to the east of Ukraine, uh, to the countries of Europe, uh, most of the European countries are American traditional partners. Uh, so here's a say for Americans in that particular respect. Uh, then military developments. If, if Russia becomes a military dominant player all over the former Soviet Eurasia, that's a threatening thing for Americans, uh, be it their positions in the Middle East or their relations with Turkey or their positions in the Balkans even. Look, Russians are even looking at the steering troubles in the Balkans again. Uh, and it's not uh, as stable uh, as it was uh, even a couple of years ago. The Balkans, the Western Balkans, the Eastern Balkans as well. So, I mean, there are many, many dimensions that America, if uh, even if it's trying to go away a little bit and focus now on China, uh, well, it's been reminded you can't do that. You're still a global power. You know, you still have to be present here and there, not just in China. 
Not to mention, if you withdraw from this or that region to focus on China, you're leaving those regions either to China or Russia. They, they, they feel this vacuum of security, of power. You know, they get stronger. Americans are withdrawing. And what does it uh, tell us about the potential for this uh, US-China struggle in the coming decades? So I think uh, there are so many, and I don't want to even go on with that list. There are so many reasons for why America should stand uh, strongly with Ukraine uh, in, uh, in many ways. So, so what do you think... What do you think the United States can do? Is there a diplomatic resolution to this standoff? Well, there is a diplomatic resolution if Russia wants to listen, but if they want to ignore it, then they're just deaf, you know? I mean, uh, what can you do? There was this uh, recent visit of a uh, foreign minister of the uh, United Kingdom, uh, Liz Truss, to Moscow, and then uh, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said she came absolutely unprepared which to me immediately said she came really well prepared. <laughs> you know, that's what it means. And uh, he said, it's not a dialogue of a, you know, deaf person or to the mute person, but okay, if you don't want to listen to the logic, to the reason, you know, what can you do? I mean, uh, what else you expected? There was a Macron visit before that, and Putin was going on all of his crazy, you know, escapades, and Macron just stood there, not replying, not responding, not criticizing, not not. No, not reacting in any way. And uh, he was immediately ridiculed and said, like, why would you say, stand there, president of France, you know, the free democratic Western country, and not even trying to push back? Uh, and, uh, you know, quickly there was criticism, even within domestically, within France. And uh, so I think uh, if Russia wants to listen to diplomacy, they will. If they made up their minds or making up their minds not to and ignore diplomacy and go with what they call this military technical tools, they will do that. So, I mean, it's still, it's still, it still could have two tracks, I'm, I'm afraid, and we don't know which way it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. Uh, U.S. is still trying. Every major announcement or statement by American uh, leaders uh, is mentioning that uh, the diplomatic track is open. We can talk to you, Russia, uh, on some important issues to you, but not on something which is not debatable, like, for instance, uh, the open doors for NATO or the principle of sovereignty of countries in the region, you know? You cannot uh, curtail them, Russia. You cannot tell them how to live their lives, their independent countries. On such issues, of course, there could not be a debate or, or dialogue or discussion. Uh, on anything else, there could be. And that's a message from Washington, and uh, will it work? We'll see. You mentioned uh, uh, French President Macron and uh, some of the, the diplomatic talks going on between Russia and the UK, but it seems like uh, the United States is really the one they want to talk to. Uh, but I, I also want to ask you if, supposing, sort of hypothetically, supposing the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin agreed to meet uh, on neutral territory, I, I, I wouldn't say in Minsk anymore, uh, mm -hmm. but, but uh, do you think that there's a deal that can be made there? Uh, mm. Do you think that there's any influence that, that that sort of an arrangement can have on the situation, or is that a lost cause? It's hard to say. They're so entrenched right now, both of them. I mean, uh, uh, Putin is really wanting uh, to get results out of Ukraine, out of a meeting with Zelensky, if that such meeting uh, happens. Zelensky is entrenched as well. I mean, he also said, those are the red lines we cannot cross, and he couldn't, because, again, it's a democratic country. You have part of the country which wouldn't allow him. You have this limitations on the power. Uh, he is not a dictator or an emperor. He decides what to do, and the rest of the country says, fine, that's what he decided to do. Of course not. Every time there is even, a, uh, you know, even some kind of a 
hypothesis or suspicion that Zelensky might cross the red lines on Donbass, immediately everyone is up in arms, figuratively speaking, quotation marks. You know, mm -hmm. like we shouldn't allow him to do it because no, to talk directly to the Donetsk and people, uh, Luhansk People's Republics, so-called republics, you cannot do that. Uh, first of all, they're nobodies. You know, there's, uh, we, we should talk to Moscow because they're, they're behind uh, them. They're, you know, these people in Donetsk and Luhansk are puppets of Moscow. Second of all, they're terrorists. Uh, they have blood of, of our soldiers in their hands. So how can you talk to them? Or any other, on the Minsk, of course, Ukraine is trying to say, well, look, uh, we're trying to implement Minsk, but there are, uh, but there are limits again. Uh, we've been saying, look, let's do the security you know, part first. Uh, let's uh, disarm people. Let's put arms. Uh, let's uh, put uh, international observers in. Uh, let's have some healing period, at least of several months. And of course, return the control of the border between Ukraine and Russia to, to Ukrainian border guards. And some of those things. And then we can have elections. And uh, if the people there would vote for some parties, uh, you know, that would not be really liking Kiev in many ways, so be it. Uh, but uh, Russians are saying, let's have elections right now. What do you mean right now? With all of this militias uh, uh, in arms, like they did the so-called referendum in March of 2014 in Crimea. You know, when, <laughs> you know, when you basically had a tank and people with machine guns everywhere when the vote was ongoing. And of course, no one believes the result, the official results, and there were leaked numbers of the actual figures that they got there. That kind of shame referendum and solution in Donetsk and Donbass is not gonna work. And if they wanna you know, push the Donbass back to Ukraine on Russian conditions and therefore undermine our sovereignty and uh, give them some kind of a special veto power to control entire country of Ukraine. I mean, we're talking about like 7% of population or territory there. Uh, and why should uh, those people be having veto power over entire country of Ukraine? That's just not fair. And that's why, of course, that's our red line. And uh, that's why uh, it's hard, of course, uh, for us to agree in the Minsk uh, format or Normandy format, uh, or if Zelensky and Putin meet together again, I think there is not much of a, of a space between them that they can actually meet halfway. Uh, so it's uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. One or another should uh, you know should give in or should make some concessions, and uh, no one is uh, actually seeming to be willing to do that now. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Ukraine's civil society and their reaction to Zelensky potentially crossing a red line. I'm paying attention to uh, Ukrainian social media and, and even just the traditional TV channels, and you see sort of you know the. It's what you might expect in a, in a Western country. You see opposing viewpoints. You see people who support the president. You see people who are critics of the president. It's, it's interesting to see. But for, the, for our listeners who might not know or be familiar with the, the Minsk agreements, I mean, just if you were to boil it down, uh, my, I guess my thinking, and you can tell me if this is accurate, uh, you know, Putin would kind of want these uh, sort of separatist regions or so-called separatist regions uh, to have veto power over decisions made in Kyiv. Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about, you know, maybe just explaining what that Minsk agreement is. And also, do these, uh, do these constituents, if you want to call them that, do they have a legitimate grievance? Is this a grassroots, you know, your cave, your, your, uh, infringing on my rights, or, or is it something other than that? Is it something that's not Ukrainian or not grassroots or not real? Right. Uh, well, not Ukrainian, not real, not grassroots. I mean, the, the people who are now running those so-called republics, they, they're nobodies. I mean, they've been parachuted into the region by Russia. 
Uh, some of them were actually Russians, not even Ukrainian citizens. Uh, there were complete unknowns. I mean, there was some, there were some grassroots political organizations there, uh, you know, but uh, none of them actually made any career within the so-called Donetsk Luhansk People's Republics. Uh, so the people from who I know from Donetsk, they would say we've never heard their names. How come they're running now our cities and those regions? So of course uh, they have completely no agency there and uh, no say and shouldn't have any say. And that's what Ukraine is saying. You know, if you want to uh, talk about a uh, solution, uh, let's talk Kiev to Moscow. You know, why should we talk even to these people? We shouldn't be legitimizing them. Uh, and uh, that's uh, complicated uh, here because of course it might have had some grievances before, but without Russian interference, there wouldn't be any even single shot fire in Donbass. We had some acute political crisis in Ukrainian history since 91. Normally, they'll be solved uh, through the political crisis uh, through the elections, uh, like the early one, early, early one, for instance, in 1994, the Kravchuk ran into trouble uh, at that point of time. First president, Lenin Kravchuk, had trouble with uh, his opposition and the, and the parliament, and they had snap elections. You know, he had two years to go. He said, that's fine. We have a crisis. Let's have a vote. They had a vote. He lost. Kushma came into power in 1994. And most of the time it was like this, you know, or if it's acute crisis like uh, Orange Revolution, for instance, in 2004, you know, if there's uh, evidence of fraud and falsification, let's have a rerun of elections. And that's how Yushinka won, for instance. So that's a usual uh, way I'm going to reconnect my computer here to the power source. Uh, that's the usual way for Ukraine. Uh, why 2014 Don and Donbass is different? Because you had a major interference of an external player being Russian. And that's why. And that's why. And that's why Kharkiv and, and Odessa turned out as a way. Because you didn't have such a major interference there. You had some interference, obviously, but not in such a massive numbers like in Donbass. I call Odessa and Kharkiv Donbass light, where you had some pro-Russian agents and uh, and segments and uh, sentiments in the population for sure, uh, but no, they were not that well prepared, not that well trained, not that well armed by Russia, and that's why they didn't prevail neither in Kharkiv nor in Odessa, for instance. Uh, unlike in Donbass, because there you actually had a special operation uh, cleverly and skillfully prepared in Moscow. I want to kind of continue on that point. If you would indulge me for a minute, I remember watching a video back in 2014, around the time that this sort of failed Novorossiya project was going on, where Moscow was saying, oh, there's all these people who have pro-Russian sentiments in Ukraine, and they're just waiting to be liberated. And I remember seeing this short video um, of, I think it was in Donetsk, so you know, in the Donbass, there's uh, people chanting uh, Donetsk is a Russian city in Russian. Um, although maybe this is just me, I, I noticed they were using, this may be nothing, could be something. They were using uh, the, the sound, I guess it would, in a Ukrainian accent, it's my understanding that you might sometimes hear the word city, Gorod, pronounced with the huh, and it sounded like they were pronouncing it with a Russian accent. And then they were burning a flag of the uh, Donetsk Shakhtar, which was the local soccer team's right. flag, because right. maybe it looked like uh, a pro-Ukrainian flag. Yeah. And I thought, well, that, that kind of, Solidifies it there. These are not locals. <laughs> uh, many of them were not locals. Of course, they've been shifted across the border. Some were locals, unfortunately, and uh, that's not surprising because for years and years there uh, have been uh, this major uh, penetration uh, by Russia into Ukraine's information space. You actually had millions of Ukrainians tuning into Russian news uh, stations on a daily basis, and they were shaping people's mindsets, uh, unfortunately, in many places in the east and south of Ukraine. 
so that was problematic and we've been talking about it and uh, some of what we've had since 2014 it's results of that uh, you know kind of uncensored uh, penetration and access of Russian uh, media into 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 Ukraine's uh, information space uh, but uh, yes uh, of course uh, there's been a lot of intervention and uh, I mean obviously this militia forces uh, uh, in Donetsk Luhansk republics they wouldn't they wouldn't stand a chance uh, I don't know it was one week maybe against the Ukrainian military even even back then in 2014 uh, you know, they were on the losing side uh, until Russians uh, brought the, the regular forces uh, in as a reinforcement. And that's how they defeated uh, Ukrainians uh, first uh, uh, near Iloist and then uh, later on at Dibartsev. And that's how you got Minsk 1 and Minsk 2, uh, with, uh, when Ukraine had a gun against our head and we didn't have a position to, to negotiate because we were coming out of a, a major painful uh, defeats. And that's what Russia is trying to do maybe this time again. but. I'm afraid that they wanna they wanna you know elevate the scale of Ukraine's defeats to to enforce even more concessions from Ukraine. Do Russian speakers in Ukraine do you think they want to be liberated by Putin? Is there any no. language issue in Ukraine at all? You know, it depends on who you talk to. Some people are really caring about this issue, and they you know they kind of kind of nurture themselves, uh, or maybe what's the right word? They they they. Put themselves in some kind of frenzy that they indeed oppressed, uh, but um, I wouldn't say that. I myself, a Russian-speaking person from Odessa, most people in Odessa speak, speak Russian, uh, you know, to each other and, and their friends and their family members. Uh, I've never felt uh, never felt repressed or discriminated against, frankly. Uh, but some people would say yes, uh, we've been discriminated. So I think what's been going on in the recent years actually has been very mild, very gradual Ukrainization. Uh, nothing being imposed or enforced, you know, but we're just suggesting that you can maybe pick up more using Ukrainian and it's working, especially with younger generation. I'm seeing with my students, you know, every every new year, I'm seeing more and more people there in the room and classroom who are more fluent with Ukrainian, uh, you know, even though most of them are local guys from the city of Odessa. So it's kind of working and uh, the, the whole linguistic, political linguistic issues is not that relevant anymore since 2014 because before 2014 it was a major thing but since 2014 you have a lot of russian speakers fighting on ukrainian side in the trenches in Donbass. you know often journalists would come and talk to them to our ukrainian soldiers and they would talk to the journalists in russian doesn't matter you know he, he's a strong uh, you know patriot of his country he's willing to sacrifice his life you know, to defend this country. So it doesn't matter which languages they're speaking. So therefore, in a way, it's a trans-language situation right now. This, this question, this issue might come back into Ukrainian politics like it was before 2014, before, but for right now, no one is even trying to capitalize on this issue anymore. And you mentioned Odessa being uh, mostly a, a Russophone city. Um, Tell me, I, I'm going to get I'm going to get the facts wrong on this, but th during that that period of time, shortly after the uh, the annexation of Crimea, the 2014 events, and all that kind of stuff, there was uh, sort of a, a situation in Odessa. Yes. There was a showdown. Right. Right. And yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about what that was, if you or well, as, as sure. far as you can? Sure. So in a, in a, in a, in the trail of uh, Crimean annexation or occupation uh, uh, in, in the March, uh, February, late February, and uh, uh, first half of March uh, 2014, and then Donbass fighting started. 
uh, uh, was a very volatile, unstable, shaky situation in Odessa for a while, uh, which uh, where you had a pro-Ukrainian segment, a pro-Russian segment, of, uh, you know, doing their demonstrations and manifestations and and being very active, and uh, it culminated in, uh, on May 2nd of 2014. Uh, with very unfortunate events when 48 Odessans were killed on that day. Uh, you know, uh, uh, there, was, there was this fighting and uh, all of a sudden, I don't know, the pro-Russian crowd probably thought they're going to have upper hand in numbers, but they didn't. They were actually quite uh, quickly outnumbered by pro-Ukrainian people who didn't want uh, for Odessa to follow the example of Donetsk and Slavyansk. We already saw those examples and we saw the model and a lot of people said we don't want to know that way. And uh, there was this fighting, there was a fire, major fire at the trade union building, and some people died there as well, which was a great tragedy. Um, and uh, also a wake-up call to a lot of uh, Odessans, uh, because Odessa was actually uh, often seen before that as a very tolerant city, laid back, uh, unpolitical, non-political, uh, you know, basically city-oriented towards business and not politics. And then all of a sudden you have these clashes and people are dying. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's been a trauma. Uh, it's been a teaching lesson in many ways. It's been some mediation efforts. Uh, but also that, that, uh, that particular episode uh, showed that the, the, the Putin's idea of the Novorossiya, that ever, everyone in the, in the South in the East just loves Russia, was also wrong. I mean, apparently these people who were curating all these events from Moscow, they, they just miscalculated in terms of uh, in terms of numbers of people who were willing to uh, you know to to greet uh, uh, Russia as a liberator. But you know, these times uh, there will be someone. Of course, obviously, if the Russian troops come, there will be some people who will be saying and coming out to the streets and bringing flowers to the Russian troops. But the numbers, I don't know. But uh, that kind of segment uh, in Ukrainian population in the south and the east was always there. So therefore, uh, we shouldn't be saying that Ukrainians just like one hundred percent of all Ukrainians are absolutely united. But at the same time, the degree of consolidation is strong, like it was in twenty fourteen. Now again, the more the more Russia is threatening, the more Russia is hurting Ukraine. The bigger is the degree of consolidation of Ukrainians and rallying around the flag. Well, things are peaceful now, at least, and I hope they remain that way. Uh, oh, thank you yeah, again. Thank you then again for speaking with me, Volodymyr. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'm speaking with uh, Volodymyr uh, Dubovic. Uh, he's an associate professor in the faculty of the Department of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa. Uh, and he is the director of that university's Center of International Studies. I'm Dan Terlecki, and this has been another episode of Ukraine Watch. Thank you. Українське незалежне радіо.